Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. It is the most wonderful time of the year. At least according to Andy Williams. Now, I don't know if it's just me. Maybe you feel this way too. But I don't know about Christmas 2020, at least this season leading up to it. But it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of wonder in this season. You see, this morning we are kicking off a new sermon series called Wonder. And the goal is really simple. It's to help us to rediscover the wonder that exists in our world, the wonder that exists in this Christmas story, and the wonder that exists in our very own lives. You see, wonder is important because we were designed and created intentionally to experience and be drawn to wonder. It's the way that kids operate in the world. We talk about this childlike sense of wonder that kids often have. And there's something about it that elicits this sense of awe and amazement, of uh, kind of reverence and respect. It fills us with this sense of grandeur that we're experiencing something bigger than ourselves, greater than ourselves. And ultimately, I think the goal of wonder, as we'll talk about over the next several weeks, is that this wonder is designed to help us draw closer to God. And so that's my hope and prayer for us in the middle of this season, this Christmas season, that we can begin to rediscover the wonder in our lives. Now, I don't know if it's something that happens with age, as we get older and we experience more and more things, but there seems to be a, stri- a stark difference between the wonder that adults seem to experience and the wonder that kids seem to experience. If you are parents with children in the home right now, I think that's one of the great blessings about this Christmas season or about Christmas in general is there's something about the way that kids experience Christmas that helps you kind of tap back into the wonder that exists in this season. Kids, they look at things with big and new eyes. They experience things for the first time, and they're overcome with this sense of awe. They're overcome with how incredible, how sensational. They don't don't have all of the dialogue in the back of their heads about how much things cost, or if they knew the way that that really worked, or the details behind that, or some of the things that are happening in the world, or the sense of struggle that we're experiencing in our life. They don't have to deal with any of that. They're immune. They're impervious to kind of all of the hard realities about life that kind of weigh down and bury the wonder that exists in the world around us. And so I'm jealous and envious of those of you who have children because it is this unique way that we get to access through their eyes the wonder of this season. And so there's something that happens as we get older as adults that we lose this sense of wonder. Maybe for you, you've lost the sense of wonder of this Christmas season because of the way that it's been commercialized, because of the way that the focus of this Christmas season has shifted away from the story of Jesus in the manger and towards commercialism and, you know, the consumption of more material goods than we need and, you know, the differences between the haves and the have-nots and all of the harsh economic realities of our world. Maybe for you, that has caused you to lose a bit of your sense of wonder. Or maybe you find yourself in this Christmas season facing a new reality, a difficult reality. Maybe it's a, a reality that's based on poor you know, health circumstances, or maybe you're navigating diffi- difficult relationship circumstances. But whatever it may be that you find yourself in a place where you know, there's not a lot of wonder right now because of the facts of life 
that you are surrounded in. I think one of the most common ways that we lose our sense of wonder, though, maybe the most common is because things become familiar. When we experience things in new and in novel ways, they hold this allure, this glow, this radiance of wonder that we can capture and experience. But inevitably, and oftentimes quite quickly, that wonder wears off. A perfect example of this happens every year at Christmas when kids open up their toys and they're so excited because they just received the greatest gift that they've ever received in their entire life. It's the thing that they have been wanting for so long and their life is finally made because they got it. And then inevitably what happens a week or two later, they're bored and it's at the bottom of a toy bin or in the back of a closet or they're on to the next new thing they want. The new, the wonderful, quickly loses its sense of wonder as it becomes familiar and routine. Same thing happens with us as adults. A great example of this might be when you travel to a new place for the first time. You show up to this beautiful, well, back when people traveled, but you show up to this beautiful, new European city that you had never been to before, and you step out, and you're amazed by the way that, you know, the culture and the scenes and how it's all so different than the world that you live in, and it's just so charming and quaint and magical, and you're filled with this sense of awe and wonder about this beautiful city that you find yourself in until about two days later, when you're ready to leave and you're like, okay, I've had enough of this place. Time to move on to the next new one. We're ready for this. If you've ever taken a cruise, this is kind of the mentality that happens. Like, hurry, rush off the boat. There's this new amazing place for you to go experience. And then, you know, after a couple hours, you come back on the boat. And it's like, all right, off to the next place. Because inevitably, wonder fades over time as things become more and more familiar. Maybe you've moved at some point in your life to a beautiful place. Maybe, you know, you're in a coastal city or you're a city in the mountains and you're just, you stare out the window every day at how beautiful the scenery is around you. Overcome with this sense of awe and wonder about the natural beauty of this place that you find yourself in. And then inevitably over time, what was once something that inspired wonder in you becomes a pain an obstacle, ugh, the snowing again, they have to clear the roads. We lose our wonder to the familiar. I think that's one of the dangers of this Christmas season, is that we lose ourselves to the familiarity. You know, they say that familiarity breeds contempt, and I think for many of us that can be the case with these Christmas stories in particular. They're so familiar, they're so common, they're so ordinary by the time as we become adults, that we hear them again and again and again, that they have lost any sense of, you know, wonder and amazement and awe to them. They're just these normal stories we tell the same time every year, yada, 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 here's what happens, there's a manger and a baby and two people and donkeys and shepherds and all the things. And so my hope is today, at least, we're going to take a journey into one of those Christmas stories. But what I'm going to show you, my attempt to show you, is that there is, behind the familiar, behind the ordinary, average, common details that we're so accustomed to, there is a story and a world that is filled with unbelievable wonder. So this morning, we're going to be in the second chapter of Matthew. And Matthew tells this story that you have likely heard before. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. 
Now, it's important that we talk a little bit about who the Magi are, because in the way that we sing the songs and in the stories that we tell, these are wise men who have come from a distant land, and there's three of them, and they're riding camels, and they show up. Likely what is the case is these Magi were kind of ancient scientists, astronomers and astrologists who studied the heavens and the skies, and they were well-versed in kind of the STEM areas of learning. So science and technology, engineering, mathematics, these were the modern-day NASA scientists of the time. And these people traveled from a long way away to come and visit King Herod and Bethlehem in Judea. Best guess is that these magi came from what would be modern-day, you know, Iraq. They came from Babylon, most likely, and they traveled long distances to get to Jerusalem and ultimately Bethlehem some 550 miles, maybe 600 miles. It would have taken them a month to two months to make this journey. And it likely wasn't just three. There's no biblical evidence that there was only three. We kind of come to that conclusion based on the gifts that were given. More likely, it would have been this large traveling entourage. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people kind of in mass mobilizing and moving as these wise men, as these magi, as these scientists made this huge trek from their homeland in Babylon at the time to show up at the doorstep of King Herod. Now, this is important. They show up and they ask, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, what's happening here in this moment is that these magi have seen something. They've observed something that's happened in the skies. Some celestial activity, some movement of the stars. They've noticed it. They've taken note. And then they've acted upon what they've seen. And I think what's so interesting is that we oftentimes just move right through this. We see the scenes and the images of the little manger and Mary and Joseph kneeling next to to the baby Jesus. And there's the star up above in the sky. And we think, oh, that's cute and sweet. But think about what had to happen in this moment. There had to be something so compelling, so amazing that happened in the sky that a group of men who spent their lives observing what would happen, taking notes about the ways that the stars would move across the sky, taking notes about the different constellations and the different orbits of the planets and all of the things that they were able to observe. It's amazing the records that we still have from this time period. All of this information about what was happening in the heavens. And then something had to happen. Something so spectacular, something so miraculous that it caused these, this, these wise men and their large entourage to travel for months to show up and to investigate what they believed was going to be the indication of this new king, this king of the Jews. And so 
what's interesting and what we need to remember about this is these magi are from Babylon, which was once kind of the home of Israel while they were in captivity. So about 600 years before this whole story happened, there was a large group of Israel who lived in captivity in Babylon. And so over time, you can imagine that the stories of the Jewish faith kind of transposed and leaked and seeped into the water of the culture there in Babylon. And so these wise men likely grew up knowing about some of the, this Jewish prophecy that existed. They knew that there would one day be a new king, one day be a new Messiah. And according to some of the prophecy that it would be indicated by what would happen in the heavens. Now, one of these pieces of prophecy comes out of kind of the book of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and in particular, out of the book of Numbers. So here's what Numbers says about this new king that's one day going to be born and how you would be able to know that this was happening because of what was happening in the skies and in the stars. This is something that these wise men, these magi, would have had access to. This is what Numbers 24, verse 17 says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. One day a star will come out of Jacob. And it goes on to talk about that this star will be the indication of a new king that will rule all of the lands. And so, this is, in a way, what the wise men are quoting back to Herod when they show up on his doorstep. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? So there had to be something that happened that caused these magi to travel all this great distance. Now what happens, because this story is often so familiar to us, is we just move right past it. The wise men show up just like they're supposed to do, and then they figure out where they're going to find the baby Jesus, and they come down and they bring him gifts. And then we move on and we tell the next part of the story. But I think, if you'll allow me, that there is a whole lot more wonder in this story than we often are given credit for. You see, this passage in Numbers is a passage of prophecy foretelling what would happen and when the king of the Jews would come, when this Messiah, this promised child would come. And how you would be able to identify it because of what happened in the stars above. But this is not the only passage in scripture that talks about the, the celestial bodies and the activity of the stars in the sky indicating the birth of the promised one. And to look at that, we have to go all the way to the back of the Bible and into the book of Revelation. Now, if you've grown up in church... Uh, you recognize that Revelation is kind of a strange book. It's a wild book, and a lot of interesting conclusions have been drawn about some of the writings in the book of Revelation. My guess is you've never heard a Christmas season sermon that included the book of Revelation until this morning. So, if you'll permit me, we're going to look at a bit of astronomy and some of the celestial activity that happens in the book of Revelation and how I think it could be connected to what happened on this Christmas day a long time ago. So, in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation, this is what the writer is writing about. He's writing about the foretelling of this promised king, this Messiah, this baby that's going to be born, and the way that you could tell it was going to happen. So in Revelation chapter 12, Then a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because she was in labor, 
in pain from giving birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. It was a great fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven royal crowns on his head. His tail swept down a third of heaven's stars and threw them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations. Now, if you're like me, you read this and you go, Huh? This is a strange, this is a wild passage, and this is why most of the time pastors don't preach on the book of Revelation. Because it is some really kooky, weird stuff. But here's what I think is interesting about this particular passage in Revelation. It talks about this woman who is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. Now, when you investigate the night sky, which is really difficult to do in Dallas, but if you were ever somewhere where you have access to kind of this unpolluted night sky, what you see is hundreds and millions of stars. And throughout the centuries and throughout civilizations and ages, people who didn't have television, who didn't have smartphones and technology, looked at the stars and observed what was happening. And, you know, day after day, night after night, week after week, year after year, they would note what the stars would do in the sky and the way that they would move and the way that they would change. And across all civilizations, there are some consistencies in a particular couple of constellations that people observe. One of those in Latin is called Virgo. And this, this constellation looks like this. And across Egyptian civilizations and Babylonian civilizations and even you know, modern-day Roman and Greek civilizations, these people noticed that this took the shape of a woman lying on her side with her arms and her legs spread out. And so they named her Virgo, which is where we get the word virgin. And so this is one of the constellations. Another constellation that appears across different civilizations is the constellation Hydra. It's in the shape of a snake. You could say that maybe it's a dragon, but it's this kind of menacing-looking serpent. This is what the constellation Hydra looks like. And so you can see it's kind of long tail snaking up, and there on the upper side is its head, and it's kind of this kind of foreboding, dangerous-looking constellation. And so it's named Hydra uh, to represent its kind of serpent-like activity. Now, that's all well and good, except for the fact that in certain moments... In certain seasons, not every year, but occasionally, the stars and the skies align so that you find the Virgo constellation and the Hydra constellation in direct relationship with one another. And the woman is placed above the serpent and the serpent or the dragon is below the woman and it looks like this. This is what happens occasionally in the night sky which these ancient magi, these Babylonian kind of astronomers and astrologers would have known of and would have been able to anticipate kind of the cycles and the seasons and the rhythms of when this would happen. Now, not just this, but there's even more. There are even moments that when Virgo and Hydra are in the same night sky, that there is the same activity that happens with the sun and the moon. And so there are seasons... Every several moments, you know, across the decades and the centuries where Virgo's in the night sky and below it is Hydra, but also kind of in the upper torso region of the woman appears the sun. 
the sun begins to emerge through this constellation, while at the same moment, towards the base of the woman, towards her feet, you can observe the moon. And so every now and then, all of these things align, and if you were backed in and looked up at the night sky and you could have access to all of it unpolluted by modern light like we have now, you would see this woman and her torso and, and upper chest area would be radiating with the sunshine. And at the base of her feet would be the moon shining bright, and below that would be this snake, this serpent, this dragon, Hydra. All of this occurs and has been observed and noted in kind of astrological phenomenon over the centuries and millennia. So with all this, let me read you again what the writer of Revelation describes as an indication of the birth of this Messiah. Then a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, this Virgo with the sunshine radiating through her constellation, with the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out because she was in labor and pain from giving birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven. It was a great fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven royal crowns on his head. And his tail swept down a third of heaven's stars and threw them to the earth. Now, we understand what that might be pointing to. That could be describing a meteor shower. Anytime you've ever seen a meteor shower, whether in person or a video of it, it looks like stars are falling from the heavens, all coming from one specific point in time. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations. Now, this is interesting, but what's even more interesting is when you do some mathematical astrological computations, which people have done, they have discovered that in the month of September, in the year 6 BC, all of these astrological signs converged upon one another and happened in the night sky. And on top of that, there was a comet that emerged during that same time period, traveling westward through the eastern sky. And it was a long-tailed comet that began to emerge somewhere out of the vicinity of the Virgo, Virgo constellation, it looked like this point of light that grew and got larger and larger, perhaps like a woman giving birth to a child as the child grew over time. And then the, const the constellation gave birth to this comet as the comet emerged from the constellation. And this long-tailed comet stretches and streaks across the night sky. And eventually, it gets to a point, as you look out over the horizon, where the constellation, or where the comet, excuse me, in its long tail, looks like an actual pointer over a direct spot in, this, in the horizon. And so imagine in 6 BC, roughly about the time of the birth of Jesus Christ, all of these things are happening in the night sky. This Virgo constellation, this Hydra constellation, the sun and the moon in relationship to these constellations, and then all of a sudden this long-tailed comet streaking across the night sky out from the middle of all of this celestial phenomenon. And if you were a group of magi studying the night sky, you would have recognized the confluence of all of these events. And you would have taken note, and it would have inspired you that all of these wondrous signs that you saw in the heavens might mean something significant. 
And because you were familiar with Jewish prophecy, you recognize that this could be the indication of the birth of the Messiah, the promised child who was to come and to rule all the nations and to save the world. And so it might have been so spectacular and so wondrous that you would have mobilized and you would have followed this comet across the night sky, traveling west, and you would have gone in search of it, and it would have led you to a city called Jerusalem. And there you would have shown up at the doorstep of the king with your large entourage, and you would have said, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And this is perhaps what happens in this very story, this very familiar story that we tell year after year. So common, so commonplace with these ordinary details of perhaps three wise men on the backs of camels. But when you move past the familiar, when you move past the common details, what you discover is there's something far more wondrous. There's so much wonder behind the details of this story that it's easy to miss. And I think the point of all of this is not to describe exactly what, you know, cosmological and astrological phenomenon were exactly happening at the moment of Jesus' birth. But to remind us that in the midst of all of the familiar and all of the ordinary of our everyday lives, there is wonder waiting to be discovered. And so my question for us this morning is, where in the midst of the ordinary, where in the midst of the mundane and the routine and the rote and the average and the commonplace, where in the midst of all of your familiar day-to-day life is there wonder waiting to be rediscovered? in your interactions with your children, in your conversations with your loved ones or your significant other, in the day-to-day routine of your comings and your goings, of the you know, small comments that you share with friends, the interactions that you have at work, maybe the words of a particular song, or the line of a particular hymn or poem. Where is all of the wonder waiting for you to rediscover it? Because here's what happens when the wise men begin to notice the wonder that exists in their world. This common occurrence of them looking up at the night sky, they see these wondrous things happening, but they don't just observe. It's not just taking notice of the wonder. They begin to do something else in turn. They begin to follow where the wonder leads them. And this is what happens. After they had heard all that the king had said, the magi went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose, it went on ahead of them, just like we talked about how this comet might do, until it stopped over the place where the child was. This comet with its long tail functioning like a pointer in the night sky. And it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down. And they worshiped him. You see, when we recognize the wonder that is hidden in the world all all around us, if we allow it to, this wonder will lead us to worship. It'll lead us to recognize the God and the creator of the universe who orchestrated all of the stars in the sky and all of the rhythms of our earth and all of the moments and breaths of our life. And we, when we can step back from what seems to be too familiar and too common, 
we recognize it's all a gift. The beauty that lies all around us in the small moments and in the large moments and all of the moments in between. And when we lay hold of this wonder, when we behold this wonder, it can lead us back and point us back to God. And the proper response to acknowledging our place in this whole cosmic structure, to recognizing that God is the one who's at work in all of this, is worship. And worship is simply acknowledging our proper place and God's proper place in the cosmos. Acknowledging that God is grand and supreme, wonderful and majestic, capable of anything and everything, and we are not God. And thanks be to God that that's the case. And so my hope and prayer for us as we begin this Christmas season is that we would take note of the wonder all around us and that we would lead where it follows and recognize that it takes us back to God. The song that the band sang earlier this morning, We Three Kings, has a passage and a section that goes like this. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. My friends, I hope that you will follow the star, that you will follow this wondrous star, and that it will bring you back to God's perfect light. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for today and this chance to come together and worship. This opportunity to stop and acknowledge the wonder that exists all around us and to accept and admit and respond to the fact that you are the source of all of the wonder. God, we live in a good world, a world that you have created, a world that it's easy to lose sight of the wondrous things around us. So help us to take notice, help us to follow where it leads, and help us to be drawn back closer to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.